2: in four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Pleasdale. I am a writer and film critic and today I'm delighted to talk to Lawrence Grobel who is a interviewer par excellence. He has written a number of books and has interviewed everybody, hundreds of people, uh, some of the most famous people in the culture including Marlon Brando, Barbara Streisand, Richard Feynman, Oh, just just everyone, Dolly Parton uh, Kurt Russell, Goldie I could just go on and on and on, Al Pacino, he is the biographer of Al Pacino um, it's a great honour to talk to him and uh, one of the things I, I kept into the recording, so um, I hope you enjoy it, is uh, we started off quite loosely and we were just chatting and it's such a fun way to start the interview uh, I kept it intact and uh, did very little editing so that you could just enjoy us as, as we as we uh, you know go go along our way. Um, his books are available from Amazon and anywhere you can find good books. I'll put some links in the show notes. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter at DrJonty D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. That's me on Twitter, I should say. You could follow Writers on Film on Twitter at Writers on Film 1. You can like the episode, review the episode, share the episode. You know the drill. If you don't, if you're a first-time listener, then please do. Please let me know. Give me any feedback you like. I would like to hear your thoughts on what you think of the episode or what you think of the show in general. But before you do any of that, please... Enjoy the
2: conversation.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm such a narcissist. I end up looking at myself and, uh, d- and not concentrating on the other person.
1: <laughs> well, that's, you know, when I was doing... Um... Uh, all the cable TV interviews I did for Playboy uh, as well, I I hated looking at myself on camera, you know, I mean, and I'd have to edit it. So I, I kept saying, let's just put the camera on the subject, just put two cameras on the subject, get me out of it. And eventually they did it that way, and I thought it was better. But also it was like I didn't have to be self-conscious about, oh, why am I wearing this? Why am I that that? Well, how come I am wearing sandals? and then uh, and they, it shows your know, stupid things.
0: it's It's funny because when I edit these podcasts, which i I do very, very lightly. I have a very light hand. I, you know I like to keep the conversation, but the one thing I try to do is cut out as much of me as possible. And so, yeah. so people go, oh, it's great. You let the uh, you let the your guests speak, and it's like, yeah. But I, I, kind of cut myself out. That's why you think that. Well,
1: I do the same thing all the time. I mean, I talk way too much when I do interviews, and um, it's, I guess it's what what one might call it, one's style, because I got, uh, you know, I was able to do five hour interviews or five day interviews. So you know, I basically talked a lot because I wanted my subject to feel, hey, why is he doing all the talking? <laughs> so they would come in and have that what they had to say. And then I would cut out all the stuff I had to say. You know, I mean, uh, uh, I know what, I, I, I don't need to, you know, have myself in the interview a great deal if I can cut down the question to you know a sentence
0: how did how did you get start i mean i've i've read i've just finished reading your uh, wonderful book you you talking to me uh yeah after robert de niro's 80th birthday it seems like an apt yeah book to have read Oh, what an entertaining what an entertain so i know quite a lot about your life but i'd love to introduce you a little bit more to our listeners so so um that's ha- fine
1: but be- before we do though i just want to ask you you've sure. got an english accent and yeah. you're living in italy
0: yeah right i'm i've been in italy for 20 20 odd years now came here with my girlfriend uh, to to teach at university and then just stuck here and uh, i've lived here
1: where where's here where you live
0: Here is near. It's between Venice and the beginning of the Dolomite Mountains. So um, I can go down to Venice to do my university work on the train, and then uh, I come home and I'm in the mountains. Not not quite the Dolomites, but I'm in the pre what are called the pre Alps. Just and do you get? uh,
1: uh, uh, And do you make a living from teaching?
0: Uh, teaching is my sort of solid day job sort of monthly check which I can rely on, which right. uh in times of covid and other times is, has been is extremely grateful uh, and the journalism is a very uh, a very good um uh is it, proving increasingly significant in in helping out okay. um and but it, I, I, I do know a lot of journalists who, are going in the other direction journalists yeah. who were full time but are now getting day jobs because they just can't support themselves anymore
1: yeah it's very tough so mm. it's good to hear okay and are you making uh, is is what we're doing now part of your journalism or is this a sidebar and you write stuff
0: it's kind of a sidebar uh, yes it's definitely a sidebar because i mainly i mainly write stuff for um Variety, sight and sound, a whole bunch of places, and I'm I'm just finishing my my the first book, which is a biography of Terence Malick. So that's uh, oh, that's nice. that's been my big sort of project for for the last year and a half. And, um, and
1: that's a that's a book that probably no, very few people will read. Correct?
0: I'm not sure. I mean, there isn't a bio- It depends on how. Terence's next film does really I think his reputation I'm I'm not
1: being cynical I'm just being I mean I'm just thinking you know it's so hard to you know you know when we put out these books how many people see them who's interested in them uh you know Malik is has had more failure than he has a success, I guess, mm. but he's had tremendous uh, good reviews when he was starting out. He was sort of an Orson, uh, not a Stanley Kubrick, Orson Welles type figure, you know, that he was like, wow, this guy's doing great stuff. And then all of a sudden he just went in another, you know, his, his film just didn't get well reviewed and things happened. But anyway, it'll be interesting to see your book.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm. I mean, I mean. That's what's interesting about doing this podcast is I'm. I do recognize that it's niche to to be interested in books about movies, and about Hollywood and and all that. But it feels like we're having a, a kind of renaissance that we're getting some great books and that and they're climbing up the New York Times bestseller list and people like. Mm-hmm. Sam Watson with his book about Chinatown and uh, Glenn Frankel with his book about the searchers. And, you know, there's, there's some stuff out there that's really becoming popular. So I'm, I'm hoping to, to encourage that.
1: Right. Okay. All right. So let's do, let's start just be uh, my concern. As always with my internet, uh, sometimes mm. it goes, It'll just stop. You know what I mean? It's like, a, yeah. even if it's a minute or 20 seconds, it stops and I'm out of it. And then we have to reconnect. So um, let's See if we can get as much done as we can. If I lose you, um, I'll try to get back on. If I can't, we'll email about it.
0: <laughs> okay. Cool. Great. Okay. And any interruptions, anything like that, I can I can easily edit out. Um, right. right. So yeah, just the uh, what? Well, what I was saying earlier to tell you the truth, I kind of tend to leave all this in.
1: <laughs> you talking? That's to... Whatever you want, whatever you
0: like. <laughs> it's kind of funny that. Um, talking to you i was thinking oh how do i interview an interviewer and then now i realize i don't i get interviewed by the interviewer
1: <laughs> <laughs> i usually do like to know something about the person i'm talking to that's just my uh-huh. nature i guess um i often think that this is pre-interview so i'm asking you these things but if you want to include it it by all means you know i'm not i, I have no objection
0: right great and and so how uh, let me repeat the the question uh, just before we uh, we we went off t- um uh, to john land uh, <laughs> to what my daughter's call radio john how old are your daughters oh 19 and 22 oh, good for you yeah, mine, yeah. Are, mine are mine are a little older i got
1: two also oh how old are they Oh boy. One is thirty nine, the other's forty two.
0: Wow. Wow. Oh you've wow knew-
1: is right. I can't believe it myself. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. That must be a pinch me moment. And and just two girls? Two girls, three grandchildren. That's it. Wow. I love having girls, girls, uh, you know, I mean, I, I know you're supposed to be neutral and you would le- love, you know, before they're born, definitely you'd love any sex, but having had two girls, it, it was perfect.
1: I, I, I don't disagree, but I would have loved one more. I would have loved to try a boy, but my, mm-hmm. th- my wife said, shop is closed. <laughs> <laughs> We're done. Two, two is enough. Yeah. I said, all right, I can't fight her.
0: <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. So when where did you when did you start out um asking people questions what, what what's your background Hold on a second you haven't even introduced me <laughs> Oh I'll oh I'll do a little pre don't worry I'll do a <laughs> pre thing where I do all that so it's Oh okay uh... hey people start listening to this from the
1: beginning I'm asking you about your children you're asking me about mine and they why are we listening to this
0: <laughs> they um, don't believe me that they are used yeah. to it <laughs> they'll, they'll Okay be...
1: uh, uh, okay, I so, say say what What was your question? How did I start out?
0: Yeah, yeah. How did you How did you start out asking people questions and and getting paid? Well, it? it was never my intention to be an
1: interviewer. Um, right. I, when I was young, um, my you know there were certain novelists that really uh, turned me on, and um, I, I just appreciated good writing. I appreciated good literature. I read Dostoevsky when I was like 15, and I read uh, Kafka and and uh, J.T. Salinger and and Norman Mailer and and uh, James Joyce just blew me away. And then I got to J.P. Donlevy, and they're just just a uh, Philip Roth, Saul Bell, a lot of these writers. And I said, God, wouldn't it be great to be able to write like that? You know, I mean, to be able to create work. Um, so I went away to to uh, after I. I was in college, I edited my uh, campus humor magazine. In high school, I was the editor of my school newspaper. So I was writing, you know, and I, hmm. when I was 15 years old, I won an essay contest uh, the, about America's three greatest presidents and Newsday published it. and, and the, it, the essay was published in the in, in, the, ma- in the newspaper. I got a watch that I still wear today engraved. And I. And then I, the, the big thing was to go to Washington, D.C. at the end of the year and meet President Kennedy. And uh, so I did go, but Kennedy was in Berlin at the time. So I met Bobby Kennedy, the attorney general and the, the head of the FBI. And, you know, a lot of these kind of things. So I saw when I was 15... That writing paid, you know, I mean, it didn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean money paid, but it it, it got you attention. It, 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 it distinguished you among your peers. You know, my all of a sudden in the school, they all of a sudden knew who I was in a different way. So, you know, that, that you know, there was something about that. And then when I went to college and I became the editor of the Humor magazine for three years and I wrote a a column, again, I was writing prose and I was writing satire and humor, whatever it was was I was doing. Uh, I went to uh, join the Meredith Mississippi March uh, in 1965 uh, during the summer and um, marched with Dr. Martin Luther King and all and, and wrote about that for Newsday and for UCLA. Um, so I wasn't really doing interviews, you know. I was writing, mm-hmm. but then uh, and then when I went to Ghana, I went to the Peace Corps for three years, and in Ghana, I met this this rather remarkable um, sculptor named Vincent Kofi, and he what he did is he took these he, he would get the uh, tree trunks and he would carve you know do his carvings based on what he what, uh, you know the knots and the holes that were in the tree and he would make mm-hmm. mouths of them and whatever. And so it was very fascinating to see what he did. And I went to Kumasi where he uh, was teaching and and uh, I went to his home and I walked through the woods with him as he picked out his wood. And then I suggested an article to African Arts Magazine at the time. This is 1970. And um, they said, uh, yeah, go ahead and do it. So I wrote to Kofi. He came down to Accra where I was living. I got six bottles of beer and I I got a reel-to-reel tape recorder that I borrowed and so he was really my first interview you know that you know asking him about how he did what he did and all and i wrote it up but not as A, Q&A, but as a profile uh then when i got back uh i spent three years in africa and i was hmm. writing a novel i was writing uh other stuff and uh and, and then uh i traveled for eight months around the around the world um And getting as much experience as I could, I I sort of felt, you know, the need to experience this a lot because I wanted to be a writer, you know. And so I got back to the States and I started writing for Newsday uh, freelancing and I started writing articles and I did about. 30, 40 articles for them, you know, and it was great. And they were paying me $500 an article. And, you know, at one point I they owed me for nine articles and I forgot, you know, and I, I didn't care about the money. I was just happy to be writing, you know, and getting published. And then I decided, you know what, I, I'm going to go back. I'm going to move to California from New York and and I'm going to uh, just work on my novel. That's what I wanted to do. So I I left New York, went to California in 1973 uh, so. And uh, the first thing I did when I got my phone installed was the editor of Newsday called me up and he said, we figured out a way to get off Long Island. Because all the articles that I was writing for him uh, uh, at the time was based on Long Island, you know, Mm. demolition derby things and the Roosevelt Raceway story, you know, going around the uh the true the, the track uh, the, for the with the trotters and all did all kinds of things like that so anyway i said what, what's your idea and he said we're going to interview household names hmm. i said okay who's if who do you have in mind and they said may west and i said may west i said well is she still alive and they said well yeah uh i said well how do i find her and they said how do we know you're the one in Hollywood?" I said okay. So I thought I went to I called up Paramount Pictures and uh, got to some pub publicists and I said, "Is how do I get to Mae West?" Because she had done stuff in Paramount, and uh, they got in touch, got me in touch with her publicist. She agreed to do it, and I went to see her. I wore a tie and a jacket. I got to I I, you know I took my tape recorder. I got to her place, and she wouldn't let me use a tape recorder. And I said, "Well, why not?" And she said, "Well." I have let that happen before, and someone recorded my voice, and they put it, made a record out of it. And I won't let that happen again. And I said, "Well, I'll, I'll sign something for you to say I'll never do that," because you know I was, I was very nervous about you know not being able to record my first interview with her. Rightly so. so. Yeah. So she, but she said no. She said no. I'm sorry. So I said, "All right." So I took. uh, Luckily, I had a pad with me, and luckily, she spoke slowly. So, mm-hmm. you know, I I asked her a question and Zoom writing 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 all her whatever she said and then you know, as soon as I finished with her, a couple hours later, I went home and I just as best I could, you know, trans yeah, transcribe my notes and and turned it into as as good an interview as I could, but you know, obviously missing words here and there. So that was that's the first one and they liked this interview newsday and they loved the picture the photographer took I didn't take it and uh, they said use that photographer I said well what about the interview and they said well that's good too I said you mean I can interview anybody that's a household name and I said how about Linus Pauling he won two Nobel prizes uh in in you know chemistry and and uh uh peace prize hmm. and they said okay and then i said how about henry moore the artist in england and I, okay i could do him and then uh as i said made other suggestions i uh, i soon found that there were very few that are household names few scientists few writers ray bradbury i did you know but um but most of the household names were lucille ball and Cher, and and uh uh Carol Burnett and Warren Beatty and you know th- these are the people everybody knew so I started interviewing celebrities Um and I did about 40 or 50 of them and it was you know I did, it was it was interesting I'd, I'd go in I was always a little nervous talking to these people I talked to them usually for two to three hours mm. uh, I, and I needed to get about 3,000 words at the most and I what I started to f- realize about the, f- the 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 form was I'm being allowed into these people's homes, but I'm, I, I'm just getting started. Sometimes, you know, I only prepared 30 or 40 questions because that's all I needed to, you know, I mean to get going. Hmm. So I wondered what, what would it be like to do an interview with somebody of this, you know, who is a well-known person, but on a very deep level, you know, for a few days, for a few weeks. And the only place I knew that could do that uh at the time was playboy playboy did these amazing interviews you know and i grew up with them so i figured out how can i get into playboy they only do 12 interviews a year they already have a handful of interviewers that they use how does one break in as a novice you know to 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 break that field so i thought about it and i said maybe if i interview you hefner and hmm. hefner sees what i can do maybe uh, i can impress him in that sense so I suggested to do New Hefner to Playboy, and uh, they said okay. And then I I spent a while trying to get the play, you know. But the fact was, Newsday, everybody in the, in the, in L.A. knew Newsday for some reason. Newsday was a recognized newspaper based on Long Island, but you know it, it had a big following. So that was good. So uh, I went to see Hefner, and I really prepared. He thought he was going to give me an hour. I spent two days with him. Seven hours one day, a couple hours the next day. He took me up to his bedroom to show me his circular bed and his Monopoly set with uh, with uh, his friends and himself as the money on the character faces uh, <laughs> on the money. And so, but you know, I, I did a lot of investigating about about Playboy 2 and things that would the things that even he said he didn't know about. So when the when the article came out, he was really happy with it. And he felt that uh, he that they had a um, an annual lunch in Century City at the Playboy Club or something for uh, all the advertisers and Hefner, and so it'd be over a thousand people who would come to this thing, and Hefner usually made an appearance and gave a speech. This year the that I did the interview with him, he decided he's not going to come. He's going to give. Um, uh, give out a copy of the interview I did to everybody who comes. And that's his, that's his statement for the year, you know, who he is. Hmm. So I was invited to go to that lunch. And I the, the publicist asked me if I'd like to go. And he, I said, well, uh, it'd be nice. But then he said, well, Arthur Kretschmann is going to be there. And he's the editor of Playboy. I said, bingo, I'm going, you know. So, <laughs> so I went there with my portfolio of, of interviews that I had done uh, for for Newsday, and um, and I I got it you know they they put me at a table I'm sitting at this table and then uh, Arthur Kretschmer is brought to my table to meet me and uh, I couldn't believe it because this is a guy you you know you very hard to get to and so I said I said Mr. Kretschmer I said look I did the interview you know that, that with Hefner that's ever, that's being passed out um, I think I can do interviews for you, for Playboy I I said these are the people I've done and I show them my my portfolio. And he said, Well, if uh, the person in charge of, of the Playboy interview is this guy, Barry Goldson, he says, Why don't you call him and get in touch with him in Chicago? That's all I needed, right? So I now had a name. I called up, and when I left the message, I said, Arthur Kretschmer told me to call. Now, Arthur Kretschmer was the executive editor, so it was his boss. So he called me back, and we had a conversation, and we're talking, and I tell him what I'm doing. And and I said, "How do I get to work for you?" For you? And uh, he said, "Well, who are you trying to get to?" And I named a bunch of people I was trying to reach, and one of them was Barbara Streisand. Right. And he said, "Well, we've been going after Streisand for years. And we can't get to her. If you can get to Streisand, we'd be interested." So that was it. Now I had to get to Streisand. So I got in touch with our publicist. I said, "Look, Playboy's interested. Newsday is interested. If if she talks to me." uh playboy's published in like 19 countries and languages and newsday is syndicated to 350 newspapers she only needs to talk one time to me and she'll be circulated around the world she doesn't have to talk to anybody else so uh it still took another six eight months to get streisand to uh, uh agree to talk to me um but that's how it started you know and then um, mm. I, once i did streisand Uh, that let that that was a crazy interview i mean it it, it took a long time to a a period of six eight months just dealing with her uh once it started and it took another almost a half a year to get to her so we're talking about a long period of time and i wasn't getting paid for for, by playboy until i finished the article and i made the mistake of saying to barbara because every time i saw her uh she would look at me skeptically Hmm. and then we ease into the interview and then and at one point I said you know Barbara every time I come here it's like I have to earn your trust again and again and again I said either you trust me or you don't if you trust me let's just let's just do this thing if you don't you know okay I'll leave so anyway we, we got into a lot of battles and fights and arguments but we never you know we, we it, it, it never stopped although at one point she tried to buy the interview off of me her, her and John Peters <laughs> so um, but, you know, so that so so once that one happened and when Playboy and Playboy ended up putting her on the cover of the she was the first celebrity ever to be put on the cover of, of Playboy. Um, and that's what, you know, after that, very soon, after, I did Dolly Parton, I did Henry Winkler. And then uh, uh, Playboy said, uh, uh, are you sitting down? You know, we got it. We have an assignment for you. I said, who are Maul and Brando? He's mm-hmm. agreed to now that was amazing, John, because uh, you know Playboy had at least a half a dozen people doing interviews for them, and all of them were senior, senior to me. But they saw in me that I had patience, that I had per- I was a per- uh, perseverance. And that I wasn't going to get paid until I finished it. So they didn't cause anything, you know. <laughs> so, you know, so, uh, you know, and so, I, and I guess they saw like a foolish young writer, you know, uh, but willing to try to, you know, do anything to get the work done. So the same thing, Playboy uh, uh, Brando took another year and a year and a half to get, you know, after I got the assignment and just dealing with him. Um, but finally, he, uh, he invited me to Tahiti. I went to Tahiti, spent 10 days on his island. And this became um, a book, right? It became a book, ten days, uh, uh, uh called Conversations with Brando, and the, the ten days on his island is in there, and um, and I've written a screenplay based on it, and I've come so close so often. But if mm. anybody's out there listening, uh this is this still exists, and I don't know why. I mean, Anthony Hopkins wanted to do it, Rutger Howers wanted to do it. They wanted to play Brando, so I I had be people, Uh Stephen Dorff wanted to play my character, you know, um, mm. so. And I, I mean, not just wanted to do it, but they read to me. They 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 you know pursued me. They I had lunches with them. I met with Rutger Hauer in, in Los Angeles, and then in Poland during the Camera Image Film Festival. Mm. I mean, he said, "I don't know if you know I'm big enough in the United States for you, but you know, uh, you know, I think I could do it. I'm in." But. I who am I? I mean, I wasn't a producer. I just was mm-hmm. the writer, you know. So to find to find somebody to say, "Hey, you want to do a movie with you know with Rutger Hauer as Brandon? Nobody wanted it. Uh, but but uh, Hopkins, they you know they did want. But that became a it's a long story. I don't know if I'll mm-hmm. go into it now. But but in the end, I fired. <laughs> I got rid of Anthony Hopkins, if you can believe it. It's oh my crazy. God. But, uh, well, let, yeah, let's
0: let's come back to Anthony Hopkins. Uh, I, I'm really interested in hearing how the, how the Marlon Brando interview went.
1: Yeah. Well, the Brando, you know, by the way, and i speaking about this, the Hugh Hefner and the May West interviews are in my new book. Mm. I, I did a book called Hustle, the making of a freelance writer. And, and it just came out just today actually is when I, it is officially published on Amazon and um uh, so what it is, is a series of these articles that I wrote that advanced my career in one way or another. So I included the ones like I just talked to you about. The May West one, because that after that, I started doing other celebrity interviews. I did the Vincent Kofi one in there as well, because that was the very first one. Uh, and then I, the, the Hefner one went in. And, you know, to, to, so, you know, uh, there's a lot there. And then I did a I put in a 12,000 word interview that's never been published with Tony Bennett to show how far oh, I've wow. gone. Yeah. So that the, the, this new book is kind of interesting. Um, but anyway, back to Brando, you're asking me what it was like.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. And how, how long did it take like, to set up as well? Cause if it already took oh, it took
1: some... a long time because, right. because he was, he was, uh, I was dealing with his secretary. Uh, I don't, she was his assistant more than a secretary, I think, but uh, Alice Marshak, and she wrote a book about him as well. But, um, so Alice would tell me, you know, uh, oh he's doing this he's doing that and you know he's 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 got to go to deal with the indian situation in wyoming he's going this so it was always he was always on the move and she was always trying to land and she she was the one who said you know why don't i see if i can get you i get you to go to tahiti that way there's nobody around there's no telephones you know i said mm-hmm. that would be perfect that would be great you know so she she did her best and one time you know she's she, you know brando had called me two or three times and and We talked on the phone, and he wanted to know how old I was. He wanted to know where my politics were, you know, the whole thing. You know, once he saw I was a liberal-minded person, you know, and that I had lived in Ghana for three years in the Peace Corps, you know, he sort of got interested in me. So, um, but he kept apologizing. I'm sorry I'm giving you the runaround, Larry, but, uh, you know, I'm just busy here. and there. Then he finally called and says, listen, you want to do this thing in Tahiti? i said i'd love to so uh, then we arranged a date it didn't work out another date it didn't work out i got married on june 4- 1st and on june 6th i went to tahiti without my
0: wife
2: <laughs> just
1: that was my and when i got to Tahiti, and he just he we still so i said hey i said i said i'm glad i'm here i said this is my honeymoon he says what are you talking about i said i got married a few days ago he said why did you bring her i said well, she's Japanese. She's very pretty, and I know uh, you have a pension for Asian women. So I said I didn't need this. I didn't need the disruption.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> so, I'm yeah. not
1: I'm not risking everything on that. Exactly. So anyway, so so but so you know, once I got there, I I got off the plane. I was uh, Tarita was on. The, it was a small plane. I I flew into papiate and then the, I spent the night there. And then the next day, I go on this a small plane to get to Te Tiroa. and on that plane is is a uh, uh, T- uh, uh Tarita mm. who was his wife there, his, his Tahitian wife she she was in mutiny on the bounty that's where he met her and the child um uh Cheyenne um and uh, she was she was only she was about Shane was about 8 I think. Hmm. So anyway, very beautiful beautiful child too. So um I'm I don't say anything to them on this plane but we're the only three people on the plane. You know, I just sort of not I don't know what's what's going on here and what I mean, what what the protocols are and I don't want to fuck up before I go, you know, to see him. Anyway, gets off the plane. He gives her a kiss on the cheek. He's, he he holds he he grabs the kid for a minute, and then he comes to me, and I said, "Hi, I'm Larry." He Says, "I know who you are." He goes, <laughs> <laughs> "I have to introduce myself." Anyway, he picks up my bag, you know, uh, that, that I had, and he walks me to my uh, hut, you know, which is you know, it's a small island, and and uh, I get he gives and he we sit down, and he sits down with me, and we start talking, you know, in these two chairs, looking out, and uh it was you know we must have talked for about 45 minutes before he says okay I'll leave you get settled then I'll, I'll meet you for lunch I said great so that's how it started you know and and then as sorry, we sorry talked, Larry
0: where, where was his career about that what what time he had just year? made he had just made
1: apocalypse now it had right. not come out. So I hadn't seen it. Right. Um, so he had done Superman. That was the last thing I think he played Jor-El and mm. that one came out and Apocalypse Now was about to come out. So that's, that's where he was 57 years old at the time. Mm. Um, and he was, he was overweight. Yes, he was, but he wasn't enormous, but he was big and he did get bigger. Um, so, so uh, uh, you know, we, we, For the first three days, he wouldn't let me turn. I I would go to, I say, Can I, can I, can we start taping? And he goes, No, no, let's, let's just take a walk. Let's just, we would walk around the island. We would go on a boat. We would take a little, we would go sailing, just the two of us. We would play chess. I'm a lousy chess player. He's a good chess player, but you know, um, and, and he just got to hear all my stories, you know, I mean, basically, I didn't want to ask him too many things because if I said something to him about the Godfather and did you meet the, was the mob involved, he'd start telling me stuff. I said, can, Marlon, can you can can we hold this for when we're taping? He says, Ah, I can do it I can talk. I can. But I know that you, when, the first time is the best time. You know, you know, uh-huh. the people will will give you the best story then. And then they said, Oh, I already talked to you about that, so they're going to be you know less less forthcoming. Mm-hmm. So for those three days, I tried not to ask him too many questions, and instead told him the story of my life, and he was interested. Now, why was he interested? I found out later. That Marlon was uh, preparing to play George Lincoln Rockwell, the Nazi uh, leader in the United States, uh, for the for the show Roots. It was the last mm-hmm. episode of Roots when Alex Haley goes to interview Rockwell, uh, and so Marlon is is observing me because I'm the Playboy interviewer coming to interview him. And he's about to play uh, uh, this role of Norman uh, uh, Lincoln Rockwell, George Lincoln Rockwell, of of a character being interviewed by Playboy, because that's who Alex Haley was interviewing for Playboy. Mm. So he was prepping. He was prepping (laughs) with me, and I didn't know that at the time, but I realized this is who he was. So the more I talked about things and the more I – acted and I mean behaved he was watching um and uh, so he' he was very acute in that way um so you know after the third day I was getting a little antsy because you know I, I had my tape recorders I had my questions and I haven't started the interview yet and I going oh man this is nuts so um so it was very hard to relax even though you're on an island and it's beautiful and you know you could you, you, the water was wonderful in the bay and everything but nonetheless, um, I was there for, for a job. I wasn't there you know to, to get suntan. Mm. So um, finally on the, the fourth day, I think, I took my tape recorder with me and uh, I went to his bungalow and we, we, we sat outside his bungalow and there were these large coral rocks that were there and whatever And we just thought talking. I put the I put I didn't hide it. I put the tape recorder between us. And I didn't say anything, but I turned it on, you know, so he saw that I was taping and he didn't say no. And mm-hmm. that, so he just started talking and that's, and once that started happening, then for the rest of that day, we went into his bungalow, we, ta- we taped for five or six hours, the next day, five or six hours, you know, so we did, we taped about 15 or 20 hours of conversation that way. Um, and, you know, that's, that's how that, that happened. Um it was it was a remarkable time in a way you know i mean uh, when i look back on it i mean i'm still talking about brando i'm still writing about brando yeah uh you know so the, you know he had a, a big effect on me but it also che- had a big effect on my career because when i got back and they published it and by the way playboy said they put you know they they, they at first they weren't sure they had an interview with john travolta who had just made I guess Saturday Night Fever or something like that. Travolta was really the big star at the mm. time. Brando's star had faded, but he was still Brando. Um, so I remember there was a discussion whether to, in the 25th anniversary of Playboy, the big magazine uh, issue, they they were deciding what should they run... John Travolta interview or the Marlon Brando interview, and I said that's a no-brainer, man. <laughs> you know, I can't even imagine that they were thinking that. But uh, you know, I understand you know popularity and all that stuff. Um, but they went with the Brando, uh, and once that was published, um, almost all the actors in Hollywood read this thing to this mm-hmm. day. Whenever I ever talk to an actor, they they've read the Brando interview, and especially Pacino. Um, so mm. when Pacino agreed uh at the end of that year that this came out in 19 the 1979 I think it was 1979 in in the like December um, and then uh, uh Al Pacino was making cruising and uh so he agreed to do an, a playboy interview he, it's the first interview he ever did he never did an extensive interview before mm. and I got the call from Playboy and they said, Al Pacino's, you know, uh, agreed to do it. Can you get to New York on Thursday? This was Tuesday. And the library, Academy Library, where I, at that time, there was no Google. There was no, you know, internet or anything. So I had to go to the library to do my research. And they were closed on Wednesday. So I said, I can't go. I said, I'm not prepared. And they said, well, you don't understand. Uh, He said he'll only do it with the guy who did Brando. I said, "Oh, wow, that's interesting." So I said, "Well, can you pay me more money then?" And they said, "Okay." Then they agreed. So I got my, you know, salary increased a bit. And then um I was into I was doing Steve Martin at the time. Um and I had to put that aside because of this. And when I went to New York to do Brad uh, uh Pacino, we hit it off in a very unusual way. It was almost like I was meeting my older brother and uh-huh. uh we became uh friendly. Um I would go to his apartment he was very nervous at first about doing it. Well, he didn't want me to put the tape recorder on. And I just said, no, I'm putting it on. I didn't want to get into another Brando situation where they t- they tell me when I can turn the tape recorder on. So I decided from that, from now on, I'm just wherever I am, whenever I do an interview, I turn it on. And if they don't want it on, they'll tell me they turn it off. But otherwise, they'll, they'll assume I know what I'm doing. <laughs> so right, right. That's what happened. And that's what happened with Pacino. I ended up doing uh the transcript of the pacino interview was over two thousand pages long and that was just you know that 1979 uh, i did it um
2: and, Whoa. but
1: and how, how do you get it, that down into
0: an article how do you that's
1: a that's a whole other conversation right? Right. I but mean, that's right. you know, like, that's, a, that's an editing conversation but sure. yes you know i had to learn how to index because there mm. was so much material so i would go over everything and you know we if i talked about his childhood on pages 10, 15, 170, 290, and 1000, then, you know, I would make an I, I'd write an index childhood, and I wrote down those pages, same thing with any movie he made, or uh, talked about his mother talked about whatever. So when I got to uh, a comment that he makes about, let's say, when I was a kid, I did such and such and such and such, I then stopped, you know, where I was and I went to my index. I looked up all the things he said about childhood. I took out all those pages and then started that conversation using the mm. different pages, you know, to get into what, it, some stuff about his childhood. And then there would always be a word or something he said, it says, yeah, you know, that reminded me of when I was, uh, you know, uh, doing improv, improv. What did he do about improv? You know what I mean? And then, right. and then to tie it all together and make the questions, uh work with the previous uh uh, answers so it it flowed so when you're reading the interviews i do you read them as if they're a single seamless conversation that's the way to read an interview but in reality you're looking at a very highly sophisticated edit of, of an interview i do not edit their words i don't change a single word they say But they may go on. He may talk about the Godfather for four paragraphs. I may only use uh, two sentences from each of those four paragraphs, put them together and have uh, a a comment that is coherent and advances the story. Mm. Um, So. Now that's that's a little controversial too with, with journalists. Some journalists say you can't do that. You have to you know you have to do verbatim. You can't do that when you have a two thousand word
0: no <laughs> uh, absolutely not
1: transcript. You have to edit it. So you know that's what what I was learning. I was learning on the job how to do these things. Um, and you know I've been putting together my archives lately mm. since I'm on the air. I'm, uh, I can mention this that my archive is now uh, complete. And it's three. The catalog for the archive is 310 pages long, which is the longest catalog this archivist has ever put together. He said, and because it goes, it it, you know, I I have all the transcripts of all the interviews I ever did. I also have indexes for all those things. So when a researcher is looking would ever look at this stuff, it'd be very easy for him to get to certain things they're looking for. um so uh and, and i've kept a journal over since the streisand since 1976 i've kept a journal that is now over 10,000 single space pages long over five million words and a lot of it most of it is dealing with all of these people that i've dealt with right. but from behind the scenes so it's a far more uh detailed intricate revealing uh uh a thing and so I am working on it for, as a book. I'm trying to put, uh, since I, if I'm going to do, uh, put it into my archives, the journal, I, I'll, I won't have a copy of it here, really. Well, half of it is in my computer. The other half is typewritten. Um, so I'm working on my next book after Hustle, after this one, um, of, of putting together this journal and it's going to be very explosive. It's, I was going uh, to say, gonna, is
0: that that's where the bodies
1: are buried? Surely the bodies are buried, and and I will I I will be basically blowing up my career. But you know, I'm at an age now where that's what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's not going to. I mean, I won't publish this for at least another year. You know, because it's it's I'm up to 1985 and and working on it. Um, but it, it's. Um, it's 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 amazing to me because I have, well, as I'm reading over the stuff that happened in seven, you know, with 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 Henry Fonda when he after when Henry Fonda was, uh, uh, I did the last interview with him for Playboy, but I, when he went into the hospital, I kept going back. I was hmm. seeing him all the time, and I was writing about all this stuff, and you know, and and how people came in and out and all this. So it was really kind of fascinating, you know, the the behind the scenes stuff. A lot of it I forgot. Quick, quick example. I know I'm rambling. Uh, I interviewed Miles Davis for 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 the cable TV thing, and Miles yeah. Davis is, you know, he's an equal to Brando. He's an equal to Pavarotti. You know, what I mean, yeah. there's a few people that I've done that are really iconic people, and uh, and Miles is one of them. And and you know, when I when I went to his home. He was—he was not there at the moment. He was somewhere in the house, and I—I I, while the crew is setting up, I walked out on his patio and I look outside, and there's the ocean. It was in Malibu, and I'm looking, and then I hear this voice from up above. "You're the interviewer," I said. Uh, "Yeah, that's me." He says, "Come on up." So I go upstairs, and now I'm in Mar- in Miles Davis' bedroom, and we start talking for a while. Now I'm reading this in my journal. I have no memory. That i was in his bedroom i had no memory of that whole incident i just remember the you know sitting there with him as he was drawing and talking to him but you know so it's fascinating to me that i i i was i guess smart enough to every time i finished something i went home and wrote about it you know yeah. <laughs> I documented. It.
0: that's so interesting because you have such a full life it feels like uh, yeah you're gonna even remember some important stuff because there's just so much um to remember
1: it's amazing to me how much how much there is there that I don't remember. I mean, I just saw an incident, a personal incident where my my daughter was five years old. We put her in this friendship date camp, uh, and uh, one day we you know they're late. We did, we we did, coming home and whatever. Turns out they were in a, a van with eight children, and the van caught fire. And, and the children panicked and they start crying and the car's on fire. And and they had to pull over and and uh, uh, escape through the back door. And uh, the firemen came, the policemen came, you know, we find out about it all. So I'm reading about this and I called my daughter and I said, because at five, she you should remember things like this. Yeah. I said, do you remember that you were in a van that caught on fire? She does don't remember it at all. So I said, my wife. Do you remember this?" She says, I don't remember. I said, you called the. the uh, it's in my journal. I said, we co- you called the, the head of the thing. You were furious. You were yelling at him. You never yell. She didn't remember either. And I didn't remember. Now uh, that's amazing to me, right? But yeah. if I didn't write in the journal, I would never have known that it even happened.
0: <laughs> I I kind of so, have a similar thing with first when I first arrived in Italy the first 10 years are a bit of a blur and I don't I don't really know why but they sort of concertina together whereas I can remember things from when I was 12 years old with you know absolute detail you know it's just a uh, it's almost like your 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 mind is elsewhere you're concentrating on the present too much perhaps.
1: Well, you know, this is the reason I tell people, you know, when I was teaching and and all I always encourage keeping a journal I Mm -hmm. make it an assignment you know if you're if you're taking a class of mine you have to uh keep a journal and at the end of the class you have to show it to me I will not read it but I will skim over every single page of it you know I mean I'll just Mm -hmm. look to see that you did it with the dates and everything because I think if you get into the habit of doing it Truman Capote was the one who did you know 1982 Mm -hmm. when I was interviewed Capote from 82 to 84 he asked me, "Do I keep a journal?" And I said, "Yeah, I, I do." And he says, "It's very important, you know." And, and he told me that so many of the pieces he wrote in music for the Chameleons, his book of essays, the book, the piece about Marilyn Monroe, the piece about getting stoned with his maid, when and, and going to different people's homes and dancing with the maid, and you know, all these articles that he wrote, he said they all come straight out of his journal. You know, I mean, mm. and, and I understand that when Henry Fonda died. Uh, I wrote a piece about him in, in my journal, and then the L.A. Times uh, editor called me up and said, uh, uh, "Can you write something for us for the op-ed page?" I, uh, I said, "Okay, great. Uh, when do you need it?" He says, uh, in, "In two hours." I said, "No, no, I can't do that. I, I can't write that fast." And he says, "Well, listen, if if we can't have it for tomorrow's paper, then it's old news already. We have, you know, we have to." Do... So I said, "Well, I wrote something in my journal." He says, "Read it to me." So I just pulled up my journal. It was just. I just finished writing it hmm. and, and and I read him what I wrote in the journal. He says, that's fine. That's perfect. Said fax it to me at the time. So I faxed that to him. And the next day, there it is in the LA Times op-ed page, right? Full page uh, all about me and me and Henry Fonda. So you get to see how important a journal can be, you know,
0: and, and, and you never know what's going to happen with it. Absolutely. And, and it's it's such a, a chastening story, that as well, of the editor saying Henry Fonda dying will be old news to, the day after.
1: Yeah, the day after. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's the truth, though.
0: Yeah. Back to Pacino, um, because yeah. Pacino, again, it, you know, you, you wrote the book about Brando and stay, the experience of staying on the island. By the way, uh, side note, I reckon Tom Hardy would make a great Brando. Oh, I I,
1: love Tom Hardy. Yeah, I just Uh, think
0: physically he has that same prowess, you
1: know. Well, Tom Hardy's best movie, I think, is Bronson. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant, I mean, that, that blew my mind when I saw Bronson. I said, "Whoa, who is this guy?" You know, I bought, I, I don't buy DVDs very often. I bought that one. <laughs> I right. wanted to own Bronson, and uh, I just thought it was a terrific movie. And I I like everything he does. You know, I mean, he sometimes he's a little he's a little subtle. Sometimes he's not. You know, but uh, but he's a good actor. And you're right. I, I and I I appreciate that thought because the people I thought would make good Brandos is James Spader, mm. and Woody Harrelson. Um, and Woody Harrelson, I never would have thought of, but J- uh, Jeff Bridges, who I know and I email with, uh, I wanted him to play Brando and Jeff said to me, I couldn't do Brando. I never could. He says, but he read the script and he says, and then he called me up and he says, I know who should do this. I know it's perfect. Woody, Woody should do it. He's got the nose. He's got the attitude. Yeah. And I said, wow, well, right. But I can't get to Woody Harrelson. He's very hard to get to. And then, uh, and James Spader, I interviewed him for Playboy. But I can't get to him so easily either. So that those are the two that I thought, and I will agree with you about uh, Hardy. Uh, and mm. I'm going to note of it right now. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> so if you in two years' time we see my you know the ten days on an island with Brando, yeah, the, yeah. the movie starring Tom Hardy, I've got points. <laughs>
1: you got it. You got it. That's a great suggestion. I love him.
0: Well, uh, so um, so again, sure. so with Pacino, you you end up you you start with this interview, and you it, it's really interesting that William Friedkin, who who passed away recently, um, he sort of has a run in with Pacino, or has a, there's an yes. experience with Pacino, and and you're, uh you meet Pacino directly after that. Do you want to tell us a little bit about well, that that moment?
1: That's an yeah okay. So he's some, so the this is when I first got to know Al, and he was he was making Cruising. And I went to New York and, you know, there was uh, it was a very controversial movie before it even came out because everybody knew it was about the gay world in uh, the S&M world in in New York. And uh, so I was nervous about, you know, how how it's going to be treated. And so and, uh, you know, there were protests in his i would be in his uh what do you call it uh trailer uh Mm. we'd be sitting there and you'd hear the whistles and he says listen to them those are all the gay people they're whistling they got whistles they sound like crickets he said (laughs) and but he you know but it was not an anti-gay movie but and al certainly wasn't trying you know playing something like that but uh he was concerned and so uh, he came out after he, the movie was finished and being edited. I was back in New York, uh, LA, and he was in New York. And so he he uh, came out and he told me, "Listen, I got. I'm going to. I'm coming out to see if I can see some of the uh, outtakes and how it's being edited. And uh, why don't we meet for lunch? I'm meet, I'm going to see Billy Freaking around uh, 10, at 10, 10, 9, 10 in the morning. So we went. To, uh, there was a place on Sunset, the Imperial Gardens. It was a Chinese place. uh I think it was a chinese maybe it was japanese um but anyway so i said okay i'll meet you there at noon or one o'clock mm. so i get there at around the time we we planned about let's say one and he sits it was raining and which is rare in la already and he's out he's standing in front of the uh, of the place because it was closed and i didn't know it was closed on that day it's probably a monday or something and uh, he looked very forlorn, and I hmm. said, "Hey, w- you know what's going on?" And he goes, I, "You can't believe this." He says, "I went to I went to the studio, to Tarreo Studios, to see it, and uh, he wouldn't let me see it." I said, "What do you mean? He wouldn't let you see it?" He said, "I, I go in," I, he says to me, "What are you doing here?" And I said, "Well, you know, I'm in L.A. I just thought I'd take a look, see what you know, see if I can give you any suggestions or." Whatever. He, he says, no, I, you can't see it. I don't want you to see it. And he just would not let him see it. And he, and Al just walked away, you know, and he turned around and he can't, and then, and I said, well, how long you've been waiting here? He says about 40 minutes. <laughs> 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 so I, I felt so bad. So then we tried to go to another restaurant and that was closed. And then we went to another restaurant and that was closed. So we finally got to this uh, one restaurant that finally was open. we got a place that, you know, we, we, we talked anyway uh, he ends up, going to see freaking a few days later to talk about it and and freaking was also he was just not not nice to him about it you know mm. and Al knew that there's there must be a problem with the movie and in a way there was because the movie if you read the book cruising every other chapter is is about the cop and the killer the cop mm. and the killer so the movie should have been equal and the killer at the time was was Richard Cox uh, is a, who became a friend of ours and a friend of mine after after I got to know him. And Richard Cox thought he was going to you know star co star mm. in this movie, and it was a big break for him. You know, it was a major movie for him. Uh, but the way he freaking edited it, you hardly saw Cox. It was all about Pacino, you know, and his character. And so it, it was unbalanced. It was an you know especially right from the way the movie the book was written. Anyway um so al was pretty upset about Fregan. now he, a couple of years go by maybe three four whatever and i'm doing these interviews for playboy cable uh tv mm. and we're going to interview billy freaking so you know we set up i'm over on camera and i asked him i said uh what happened with uh you and al pacino during the making of cruising he says nothing nothing happened i said well you know but he came in to see you and uh, you uh uh, to see the editing and you wouldn't let him in. That's not true. That never happened. And he's he's lying to me, right? And I'm on camera with him. But how much, can you know, how far do you go in mm. a TV interview? Uh, you know, I don't want him to walk out on me, right? And I don't want to say you're a liar. I do this. But I did say something like, well, I, I was with Al that afternoon, you know, and mm. uh, I saw him and he said that never happened. Never, he completely denied it. Anyway, I told Al this when I, you know, after the interview, I said, I just talked to Freakin. He says, nah, fuck, you know, anyway. um, So then a couple couple of years go by again, and Al's on an airplane uh, going either to or from New York to L.A., and uh, he gets into the first class, and then he's, and uh, there's Billy Freakin, is on the plane with him. So Freakin goes over to him, and he puts out his hand to shake his hand and says, hey, Al, how are you? Al said to me, I looked at his hand. I couldn't shake it.
0: <laughs> oh, says, my
1: God. Shake it. He never <laughs> forgave him for that, you know. Um, now... That we're talking ill of the dead, so that's not always a good thing. Freakin made some very good films, um, but he was a volatile man, yeah, um, multi married, and uh, you know, uh, this is this is his the Al Pacino story about Billy Freakin,
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's it's I, I, I it's the same with uh, I, I was mentioning Michael Parkinson earlier, and you know, uh, um, Billy Friedkin Now, there was a it was interesting that there were all these um. You know quite rightly pians of of praise for for him on my facebook in a sort of journalist group this guy wrote a very long post about how uh friedkin was the the rudest person he's ever interviewed and yeah. and I, I i think you know there's a time for everything and maybe not the time's not now but it is also you know you do also have to yeah let's not speak bad of the dead but also let's not be too um
1: no you got to be honest about things yeah. i mean you know it's it, it's um i mean to me the hardest interview the, the the one that was the rudest to me was uh robert mitchum
0: right mitchum was- yes that's, that sounds like a nightmare i mean he's, yeah, it was, he's- it was. And, and ironically i mean you want me to talk about that that's a, sure. sure i i mean i love mitchum as an actor i love uh baby i don't care the the lee server biography of him right. but um yeah yeah please tell us about this encounter because right. i think
1: well before i do i just 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 a, just a, a quick aside with the with the pacino book i sure. did the, the the pacino in conversation that that's available in italy and it, and it's it that actually of all the books i've done it was the first book i ever did where it earned back its advance before it was even published because wow
0: for pre like
1: 12 or 14 publishers uh, uh, foreign foreign publishers published the book including in 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 china it was translated to chinese so so that was quite something uh, and al wrote the forward to that which was very surprising because he never mm. writes it. In-
0: but are then you, are you another- still close to pacino you well
1: still- i i i'm i am i am not as close to him as i was i was mm. he was my best friend for 35 years mm. so i was very close to him and he asked me to be in his movie uh the salome movie Mm-hmm. a wild salary and so i said why do you want me in your movie i said it's about you know herod king herod and and uh you know john the baptist what are, you, what are you talking about he said well i want you to be like the biographer you come in and ask me questions while i'm talking to people just interrupt me he says i thought that was strange but i said okay i did so i'm in the movie and uh-huh. and you know uh, and I'm throughout the movie, I'm in the movie without talking. I'm just walking with him all the time, you know, walking wherever we went. And um, and so I said to him, I will, I'll do it. It was a year-long project or, or more. And I said, but why don't I actually write a book about it? You know, I'll keep a thing. And he said, okay, that's a good idea. So I wrote a book about being in the movie. And it's called I Want You in My Movie, My Acting Debut and Other Misadventures, Filming Al Pacino's Wild Salome. So uh he, when I, I I had a publisher for, that wanted to do it and the pub and I told Al, I said, Al, I found a publisher. This is great. And he says, No, the movie's not ready. It's not ready. I said, Well, it's not gonna the, the book wouldn't come out until the movie comes out. I said, That's that's but the point is publishers need a year to get it ready and all that stuff. Mm. Anyway, he got upset and he said, no. And I said, I'll give you the manuscript to read. Don't worry about it. It's it's positive. It's all about, you know, your genius, so to speak, you know, Mm. anyway, uh, he got very pissed off about it and I canceled the contract. And that pissed me off because I felt he was he was impinging upon my artistic freedom,
2: mm. and
1: I and that it didn't make sense to me to, for him to do that, especially since we were as close as we were. You know, I mean, mm. it was like, you know, I, as I say, I, I, I wasn't cl- I was closer to him than I was to my own sister, and so um, so I got annoyed with him about this, and in the end, I published the book. By myself, so I self-published it. So nobody's ever seen it, really, on Amazon. But it exists, and it's quite an incisive book, I think. You know, and, and it really does show you the way his mind works and everything else. He was mad at me about it, but we have since, um, you know, been emailing and text—not te- emailing, texting—although he doesn't like email. Right. Um, so, so that's that's that little piece of thing. And I also wrote a novel called um, Begin Again, Finnegan. And it's sort of based on my relationship and what happened with him, uh, oh, but right. you know, it's fiction, fictionalized. But you know, so how I, how, jo-
0: how Joycean is it? Because with that very title, Joyce-ian. very
1: Joycean, <laughs> very Joycean. It's a yeah, Begin Again Finnegan is is basically about uh, Finnegan's Wake. I mean, about, about Joyce. I've just and finished
0: in- Finnegan's Wake after ten years. Did you really? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I'm beginning again because I oh that's
1: great well listen listen you know I mean I've done it too I mean I've, I've listened to Joyce reading sections of it on the Cadman radio r- record I've tried reading this thing a number of times I I will not dare say I've read the whole thing in, in, in because it's impossible in a way but yeah. I have read you know I mean Joyce has always been my favorite writer and so in this Same. book in this novel I have the character the actor and the journalist uh, now there's a death that occurs, but, but while that's sc- scandal is happening back home, the actor says, why don't we just go and film make this film about the, the uh, James Joyce's exile? So that's what they do. And there's an entire chapter about the making of this film and it's all about Joyce and Amy and, and Finnegan. And the whole thing about beginning again Finnegan is when he, when he when the actor gets really angry at the journalist. And he right. tells him, he says, you, "You're going to have to begin again. You're going to have to begin again, Finnegan. You know." And he's really angry. <laughs> so anyway, but that's that's. I, I like that novel. I wrote a screenplay based on it. Never showed it to anybody, but it's, it exists. Wow, <laughs> so, wow. Anyway, yeah, you might yeah. be interested in, in checking that out. I think you can get that in, in Italy. Certainly, um, it's on. It's a. It's a paper. As a matter of fact, just as a quick aside uh that book is is on sale. I don't put these books on sale, but every once in a while Amazon chooses one of my books. I have 32 books and they and they lower the price to some ridiculous price. So they've lowered the price of that paperback to 4.95 or 4.50. Uh that's the same price as the Kindle. Um so you can actually get that paperback. It's normally $16, but
0: Brilliant. I'll, I'll and look I out for I, that. I,
1: I don't even know why they did that, but that's the that's the book they chose to lower. So I thought, well, that maybe that'll sell. Anyway, back to Mitchum.
0: Yeah, let's do Mitchum. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a bit a bit of a a bit of a dark story, but um, but not necessarily a surprising one given his reputation for being honorary. Is that the American word?
1: It was honorary. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I went to see him. He was making that championship season in 1985, mm. and Playboy had wanted to interview Mitchum for. 15 years or something you know he never they never could get him for some reason the publicist calls me up and says you want to meet mitchum i said yeah i want to interview him And said so, well why don't we start in the beginning and you know i'll introduce you i'll get you okay so i go to the movie set he's making this movie and and then uh during the break for lunch i go to his his uh it wasn't a trailer it was a it was an office i guess on, on the zoetrope lot mm. and um And so I go in there, and and he orders a, a, he gets a sandwich, he has a drink, doesn't offer me even water, nothing. I'm just sitting there, right? So that's already kind of nasty, but okay. Mm. And we start talking, and I see that he doesn't really want to talk much. So I start dropping names. Uh, I was on Brando's Island. I've done Al Pacino. I did George C. Scott, you know. And then da 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 da, and he didn't give, couldn't care less, right? So I'm and I, I, I'm saying to him, listen, um, maybe uh, you don't really want to do this interview, do you? And he goes, not really. I said, well, I said, what, why don't we do this? I said, why don't we just tape an hour? You know, it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be now. You're obviously working, but I, I can come back. We can we'll do an hour. If you don't like my questions, if you don't like me uh, after the hour, I will. Give you the tape. I'll walk out, and, uh, and nothing, nobody will ever see it.
0: No foul, no and harm.
1: Yeah. So I said, I mean, I never did that before. I never offered anybody something like that before. But you know, I was confident that I could at least ask some good questions and see, you know, maybe see what he's like. Uh, I had no other choice because he wasn't moving along any other way. And then he looks at me and he says, "Well, that's just it." He says, "It's, it's, it's the first questions." It's the first hour, and I looked at it. I said, "Well, Mister Mitchum, I I just here doing my job, you know. This is what I do." Mm. And he says, "That's what Eichmann said." He said, "Excuse me, yeah, that's what Adolf Eichmann said. Just doing your job." And I said, "Are you comparing doing a Playboy interview with what Adolf Eichmann did to the Jews?" And he said, "Same thing, same thing." And I, you know, I just
0: ah, jeez.
1: And I just stood up and I said, you know, Mister Mitchum, your publicist has my number. Uh, it was nice to meet you, and uh, if you want to talk, just let me know. And I walked out. You know, I just said, you know, this guy's nuts. And and I, and he had said some anti-Semitic things in the Esquire before this too. Mm-hmm. So I i known that he was anti-Semitic, but then uh, some time goes by, and. Tch- let me see where it is. Okay, so then I, I when the Eustons, I start writing the Eustons, mm. and uh, John gives me a letter, John say, you know, telling everybody uh, that, I, that I'm interested in talking to uh, that they should talk to me and tell the mm. truth. So I sent this letter out to everybody, including Mitchum. So I get a call from Mitchum. Uh, I had had an accident. I fell off a ladder. I broke my arm. My my uh, one eye was out of my head for a while. My nose was broken, and then two days after I get back from the hospital, uh, the phone rings. Uh, Bob, this is Bob Mitchum. I said, oh, and he doesn't remember me from previously. This yeah. is now two or three years later. Um, so, uh, so I said, uh, oh, hello, Mister Mitchum. Are you you're responding to my letter. He says that's why I'm calling. I said, great. I said, uh so i uh, you'll be able to I'll be able to see you. He says, you can come tomorrow. I said, well, I, I just came out of the hospital. I said, I you know, I have a broken arm. And he says, that's okay, you can come tomorrow. And he's up in Santa Barbara, I'm in mm. LA. So I said, okay, so I, what choice did I have? Right. So now I look back on it now and I think, God, I should have hired a you know, a driver to take me there, but I did. I drove there with my left hand. My head, my right hand's in a sling. My I can't see out of one eye. I drive up to Mitchum's place, and uh, I get you know I go to his house. I and I look like kazubodo you know. What I mean I'm yeah. really like messed up. And he opens the door. It doesn't say a word. Not like Jesus. What happened to you? Nothing. Just he you know, sits down, and we start talking. Well, he's a good storyteller when mm. it came to talking about john houston and working on heaven knows mr allison and uh, uh one of the one other film he did with him um so um was it the list of adrian messenger maybe i don't know something like that so mm-hmm. anyway, uh so i left i never brought up the playboy interview with him or anything like that but then when when uh there was a a documentary being made about Houston and they brought the African queen, the boat from wherever it was in Florida, I think, to Hollywood. And they brought, they put it in a warehouse and they asked me, they told me Mitchum was going to narrate uh, 18 different sections of this documentary. And he, and one point, part, and he's on the boat. And when that, they're going to start it on the boat, I think. So he's at the front of the boat and and, and he starts talking and he he, he says that he does the first narration. And when he finishes you know they're filming it. He looks at the director and he goes, "Too Jewish," and oh. everybody, everybody left, Right? They thought, oh, you know, very funny. Okay, so he says, "Okay, I'll do it again." Every single take, first take of each eighteen parts, he said the same thing: "Too Jewish," and it was so uncomfortable because the director was Jewish. The say a lot of the staff was Jewish. what crew. did it?
0: What does that even mean to Jewish? Like, I mean, what? uh That's a good. Bit, it, to, you know, does it have I, any? too know.
1: too much inflection too much this too much uh, that too okay that. I I can't even explain what it what yeah. he actually means except that it was not a nice thing to say after a while because it made everybody so uncomfortable yeah. um and I so I you know uh, I I, <laughs> I witnessed it you know I was there yeah, uh, yeah. and so it was quite something so that was that was Mitchum. so I never did it for Playboy I did do it for the for the for, for the Houston book though.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you've had some, I mean, talking of, of, you know, anti-Semitic, you know, you interviewed Mel Gibson. Um, I mean, one of the, and, and, you know, that interview, the the way you've described it in your book was, um, I mean, he shows his true colors straight away as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, in terms but- of
0: his misogyny more than his anti-Semitism in that case, but I haven't ever interviewed him, but I did see him at a press I was attended a couple of press conferences and asked him a couple of questions during them and hacksaw Ridge I think was the last one and he um scrolled and did caricatures with a like a magic marker on the like the desk of the news conference place and it was just like one of those weirdest things it looked like someone having an episode, you know <laughs>
1: <laughs> well Mel's a strange guy but then you got to go back to his father and see what kind of guy his father was you know right yeah, so, yeah. his so, father
0: actually wrote a book called is the pope catholic <laughs>
1: yeah right right he was challenging even the pope yeah. well you know I'll tell you something though but Mel and I got along very well you know what right. I mean it was it wasn't uh, uh as a matter of fact I even invited him once we you know I told him that I play cards I play poker with Pacino Harry Dean Stanton, George Hamilton, um, Elliot Gould—you know—we we played cards uh, regularly, every two weeks or every week almost. And sometimes it was at my house, sometimes it was somewhere else. At Al's, Al, Al would rent the Beverly. Beverly was this poker, poker for money or, or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We played right. poker for money. So, so, and I never. Yeah, I mean, these guys have a lot of money, and I don't, you know. Mm. So, but, but, you know, I, you, I learned to play poker. So, anyway, so one time. Um, uh we were playing it we were going to play at george hamilton he was going to host it and hamilton was had a an indian um uh cook that, that was going to make food and then we were going to smoke cigars and have good wine it was going to be he made it a, a very interesting evening so uh there was room at the table i think i think we had six or so so um and Mel had said to me, Oh, if you ever play cards, I'd love to join you. I said, Okay. So I called Gibson. I said, Hey, you want to do we're going to be playing at Hamilton's house? Al will be there. He said, you i would love to do it. I'll come. What time? You know, so I tell him, I give him the address, I give him the time. And then Alf calls me up later and says, So who's coming to the game? I said, Well, you know, it's the regulars, everybody. I said, But Mel Gibson's gonna come. What do you, why? Well, why 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 Mel? I said, Well, he wanted to come. He's a big fan of yours. And then what a he says. Larry, you don't understand. He says, "I don't want to have to be on when I go play poker." He says, "This is just uh. something I feel want to feel comfortable with." You know, Mel. I don't know him, so it's like I've, and I'm thinking, uh, you know, it's like one big star and another. Because Mel at that time was Braveheart and all that stuff, so he was pretty big, you know. And so uh, I just, uh, so I now, what am I going to do? I've already invited him, right? And, uh, right? So I was asking me, please, you know. So I. So I call Mel and I say, I said to him, I just want to let you know, I said that, that, you know, it turned out that we have eight players, so you would be the ninth, but that's okay. I said, you know, because we can fit you in and then, you know, we'll, we'll take turns sitting out, blah, blah, blah. So he said, mm, you know, I, I'll come another time. And he says, okay, you know, you, know, you have enough. I said, you sure? <laughs> oh. <laughs> said, yeah.
0: I got out only, only say you sure once. Don't really yeah, insist. I'm sure once. So yeah. now,
1: now if Mel Gibson ever hears this story, he will know what happened.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he's not going to listen. I don't think he listens to writers on film. Al does. Al does. So that'll be good. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Al, why are you talking about me? Oh God. I mean, one of the darker interviews that you have in that book um, was actually surprisingly with Anthony Hopkins, and not because he sort of. You know, um, yeah, does anything that we would conventionally think, but just because his philosophy feels so pessimistic yeah. and nihilistic,
1: yeah, he, I mean, that's that's Hopkins. I mean, he goes, you know, actors are nothing. Actors are nothing. He goes, you know, Shakespeare. What? Who is Shakespeare? You should burn it. You should burn down the 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 Stratford. Even burn it to the ground. You don't have to do it. You know, I mean, he's just like, (laughs) yeah, cynical about things. And uh, uh, yeah, he was a he's a cynical guy. You know, and and he just, you know, and yet he's a great actor. You know, I mean, you know, and he talked about his his process where, you know, he would make us to learn his lines. He would draw a circle. And then he would do a pie chart and he would you know do like 20 he he, he did 20, i think he did a pie chart of five times and he would do five five circles five pies uh slices in each one and each time he did his lines and memorized it he would you know shade it in that thing mm-hmm. and when he shaded it all five circles uh that you know he had he had practiced 25 times his lines and he felt that's how he learned his his lines. Wow. Interesting. It's always yeah. interesting to hear how people the people's process. You know, Joyce Carol Oates once showed me I was at her home in Princeton and she was working on a book. I said, boy, you know, you just knock out a book and one after the other. How do you keep all these characters in mind? And she goes, she shows me that she wrote a backstory for every character of every novel she's done, she showed me like 180 or 200 pages that she writes before she starts writing the novel. So she knows where these characters come from. It has nothing to do with the novel in a sense, but it has to do with how she sees them. I I thought that was like incredibly uh, deep.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I loved, I loved her book. um, Blonde. I loved, uh, I I think I loved it more than the, more than the film, but, Oh, it's much better in the film. The film, yeah. Had flaws. I think I think the I think the book is more obviously a work of art and and yes. less. I mean, it's like James Elroy, who you also um, interview. You know, he's he's so obviously in his own fantasy land that it really doesn't matter. Um, yeah, it really doesn't. You don't really have to worry about. Oh, this is offensive to the real people because it's well, you know, right. this, is, this yeah. isn't the real
1: people. Right
0: yeah um listen larry i could honestly we could have hours and hours of talk so i hope you'll come back and and talk to me again at some point but there is one final question that i have to ask you which is could you recommend a film book for our listeners
1: well you know i will i will just mention two of my books the one conversation with brando and the other is the houston's that are you know part of this uh what is it AFI or the Hollywood reporters doing the, the 25 best books of the thing. And yeah. there are certain people like Rod Lurie and all who are writing saying, I just voted for your book for the best book, you know, all that stuff. So I'm very proud of those books. Mm. But uh, I, the, if I was going to just recommend uh, certain books that, that uh, I did that thing, I, I, I did write the 25 I did, but I would say that, you know, there are a couple of novels, Mm. Uh, that I, I I I would recommend. Uh, one is uh, Bud Schulberg's "What Makes Sammy Run."
2: Uh, yes.
1: The other is uh, Nathaniel West's "Day of the Locust." I think those are two very good. Um, uh, and the third might be uh, "Get Shorty." Elmore Leonard's "Get Shorty." Those are three good books to read about the Hollywood situation. People, the uh, I thought Lillian Hellman's picture uh, about uh, the making of the Red Badge of Courage and all with with um, uh, about John Huston it was a very well done book, and a matter of fact, it was Truman Capote was inspired to do his um, his book, uh, "The Muses Are Heard," after as a nonfiction kind of novel, uh, whatever, uh, based on what he read with Hellman's picture, uh-huh. and then William Goldman's adventure in the sc- in the screen trade, um, and and uh, Klaus Kinski's uncut Kinsky, uncut his his autobiography is a very good autobiography it's written in the first person mm. so, uh, so i mean in the present tense so he starts it out where he's a kid i'm in the thing i'm with my father and he he goes in and he tries to steal some some groceries and yeah he wants me to steal some apples or something under my shirt and and the grocer comes out and i'm running and and, he, and you know and it was Pacino who who was reading that book and says you got to read this book. He says if I ever write a book, I'd like to write it like this. He says you know it's really, you you feel like you're in it right throughout. So those are just some books you know that uh, I would recommend. People might want to take a look at.
0: That sounds. I've never I've never heard of that Kinsky one. That sounds uh, fascinating. I have to after yeah. see if I can dig it out somewhere. Uh, as yeah, it's for the-
1: called Kinsky Uncut.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, again, thanks so much, Larry, for talking to me. And I'd uh, I'd love to have you on um, w- when you have a, a, the, your next book out and we can talk about that.
1: That's great. And if anybody ever gets any of my books, I will be happy to keep coming back. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody out there, you know, it's hard. to, It's very hard to find uh, readers, you know, because I mm. don't advertise. And I've mm. been self-publishing books. I, the, my first dozen books or so were were published by major publishers, you know, the Houstons and the Brando and the Michener book and the Capote book and stuff like that. Um, but then I just started wanting to write my own books, the novels I've written and the uh, short stories and the memoirs and stuff like that. And so uh, I've just been working on, you know, pu- putting out my own books. Amazon made me a very nice offer to do everything and it's not costing me anything to do it, but it's I don't get any... Uh, publicity and mm. i don't get any uh you know royalties so it's like you're putting out books and you're just hoping that somehow somewhere in the world people are getting books the one on ava gardner by the way is the one that seems to be the biggest book in europe
0: all For right me. all yes, right always, okay
1: I'm always seeing somebody buying an ava gardner
0: book they like that book excellent well I, I hope well ava gardner, sorry what, what was it called conversations it's Called conversations with ava gardner excellent yeah. excellent yeah. so uh, I'm sure we've got some Ava Gardner fans out there who, who There's are. There's a lot uh... of them out there. It's amazing yeah. to
1: <laughs> All right. Well, listen, it was lovely talking to you, and uh, we'll talk again.
0: Absolutely. Thanks so much, Larry. Take care. Okay. Bye now. Bye bye. So that was me and Lawrence Grobel talking about our um, experiences interviewing people. That was me interviewing the interviewer. And I hope I did a good enough job for you. It is almost impossible to do a bad interview with this man because he is so clever, so interesting, so insightful, so funny and entertaining. I would just love to sit back and spend a whole evening with him, uh, picking his brains and, and listening to his war stories, of which there are many. It's amazing. I loved it. Loved that experience. I hope you did too. And I can't wait to have him back on the show so that we can talk about some of the things that we never had a chance to talk about um thanks so much to elliot atkins for the music and uh thanks to you listener i hope to uh to hear i I hope you come back okay take care